Amen. You can have a seat. Well, hello. We just sang, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting what we just sang, because I know he holds the future, but I just want to ask a question. If you knew the future, do you think it would really change how you live? And I just want to just gently nudge this morning. I don't think it would. Okay, not, and again, not theologically, of course. But in our like day-to-day lives, okay, if you knew the future, would it change the way you live? Now, obviously, if somebody with great certainty told you right now the New York Jets are going to win the Super Bowl, and you bet all your money on that, and you're going to win a ton of money. Yeah, things like that. That would change. We know the future, and that changes how we live. But many of us do know the future, and it doesn't change how we live. Let me give an example. Jeff Bezos knew an affair would be extremely costly. He, I think his, his residence was California, which is a 50-50 state, and that divorce would put somebody on a billionaire list. And he did it. He had the affair, and he lost billions with a B. He knew the future, and it didn't change how he lived. There's other examples of this. Kids. Parents in here who have kids. You know this is going to be painful. This is going to be hard. There's a 50-50 chance of when they fly the nest if they ever call again. That would hurt. And yet we do it. I mean, I was, uh, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed, just a little embarrassed to admit this. You know, like, uh, YouTube ads, like, it, like, you get the first five seconds? I, I had this YouTube ad that was, like, some teen drama on Netflix, and I didn't hit skip. I was like, what is this? And it was these two teenagers who made a pact to break up uh, the night before both of them went to college. So these, like, two high schoolers, and, and the trailer, they're, like, sitting in their car, and they're going, we are, like, the embodiment of the modern relationship, you know, we're just dating for a season, then we're going to dump each other and it's going to be fine. As you know, as the trailer goes on, they're like, I don't want to break up, but we have to, we made a pact! And I, and I just, I was like, wow, that sounds really hard. I'm like, wait, what am I doing? I'm a grown man, what am I doing? <laughs> they knew the future, but it didn't change how they lived. Um, war is another example of this. I've never seen a World War II recruitment poster that said, would you like to die alone in a field after having weeks of malnutrition and fear? No. But many of the greatest generation signed up and went and made a sacrifice. They knew the future but it didn't impact their present decisions. Now, we are going to take a walk this morning, and that walk is going to be a stroll through the book of Leviticus. And we are not going through the book of Leviticus, so you can brag to your friends, well, I go to a church where they preach through Leviticus. Does your church do that? (laughs) We're not doing that. 
We're going through the book of Leviticus because the book of Leviticus is a story, all right? It's not just a list of sacrifices and priests and all this. It's a story. It's a continuation of the story, and it ends on a cliffhanger, and it's a good one. I won't leave you on that cliff, though. We're, gonna, we're going to land the plane, but it's a story that tries to answer that question. If you knew the future, would it change how you lived in the present? The reason that people left the comfort of their homes and died alone in a field and made that sacrifice was because they found truer and deeper desires were met through that sacrifice. The book of Leviticus is a book that's all about paradox. It's all about paradox. It's all about that sacrifice. It's all about how much it costs to live with God. Remember, in this series, we've been saying again and again, God is for you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. That's one side of this paradox that creates tension. It's a gift. Life with God, salvation, is a gift. Nothing you can do to receive it. On your bad days, it's still true, as it is on your good days. It's a gift. The other side of that tension is, and it's a gift that costs you everything. Tension. Enter the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is an answer to that tension. Something isn't right. How do we make it right? Oh, it's going to be really hard. Okay. And the only way to make a sacrifice, the only way to make a sacrifice is not through white-knuckling it. It's by trusting that on the other side of that sacrifice, your truest and deepest desires will be met. And that's the book of Leviticus. Now, before we jump in, we've got to say a few things. Thing one about Leviticus. You will not understand the book of Leviticus if you do not understand that you are not Serena Williams. I know. She's the goat. Now, what do I mean by that? You will not face the Lord, and he says to you, what'd you do with all that money? Like, what money? All that money from the U.S. Open and from Wimbledon and all the Nike sponsorships. Like, what, what, what? I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't me. That was Serena. No, you're responsible. Like, what, what? I didn't, I don't even play tennis. I can't even spell tennis. Like, what's happening? You're not Serena Williams. That's really good news when it comes to the book of Leviticus, okay? The book of Leviticus is deeply incarnational. God is climbing into the Israelites' world, speaking their language, using symbols they had and that they knew, so they understand them. It's so important that God, you know, God speaks your language. God cares about your neighborhood. He understands you and what you're walking through. That's Leviticus. And we're like, I don't understand that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about that for a second, right? God, and I don't like this word, but hang in there with me for a second 
to understand, okay? The book of Leviticus is sort of God play-acting with Israel to teach them about what do you do when a holy God shows up. I say that it's play-acting for a reason. Remember, the book of Leviticus takes everything we've talked about and it's the culmination of it. So if you remember, we started talking about trees in this series. Trees are the symbol of God's life-giving presence, right? Oh man, we want to be where that tree is because that's where God is and that's where life is. We want to be there. That tree was on a mountain. Oh man, God is safe. He's a refuge. We can go to him. When the world's not right, we can run to God and it's, he's safe. All right, so there's a tree on a mountain and that mountain tree place is a temple. That's what life with God looks like. Man, okay. The book of Leviticus is all about that, right? We got kicked out of the garden because of sin. So we were in this mountain garden temple place with God, experiencing his life-giving presence. Then we sinned. And then we left that mountain garden temple. He didn't. Okay? He sent us out, but he stayed there. The book of Leviticus, God says, I'm coming out. I'll go to where you are. I'll move into your neighborhood. That's the book of Leviticus, okay? And if you look up here, this is like just a floor plan of the tabernacle. That's that temple. It's supposed to be a recreation of Eden. You see where letter F is? That's the most holy place. That represents that tree of life. This is where, this is the epicenter of God's presence, okay? You see that line between the letters F and E? You see that line, vertical line, between the letters F and the letters E? Do you see it? Okay. That's a curtain. And you can be on one side, certain people can be on one side of the curtain, but if they go into the Holy of Holies, they're going to die. Okay? Now, this is why I say God's play acting. The one true creator God is whose, the Bible describes him as a fire. Is he held back and stopped by a curtain? No. He's choosing to speak to them with symbols they understand in their world. He's saying, hey, I'll meet you where you are. I'll speak to you how you understand it. That's not our world. And so that's why most of us are like, Leviticus, I don't get it. It's weird. And it is. Because it's not written for us, to us. It's written for us. I had to think for a second. So we have to understand, like, okay, the goal of reading through the book of Leviticus is not to recreate the book of Leviticus. All right, guys, good news. We're building tents, all right? We're like Compass REI. We're building tents. We're going to talk about life with God. It's in a tent. Boom, here we go. No, it's to understand what do you do when a holy God shows up? He asks for everything when he shows up. Whoa, this is creating tension. How do we navigate this? That's the tension that Leviticus is trying to invite us to live in. Because on the other side, there's life on the other side of that tension. Second thing about, that we need to understand about the book of Leviticus before we jump into it is this idea of holiness. Holiness. You've heard of holy rollers? Okay. What does it mean to be holy? Right? Does, just, does it mean to be holy? It's like, I don't even know what Netflix is. I'm so righteous. I just pray all the time and you love being around me. No. That's not what it means to be holy. And the best way we can use to describe holiness is the sun. Alright? The sun is both good 
and dangerous. All right, the sun is both good and dangerous. Photosynthesis, baby. All right, we need the sun. The sun is life-giving, okay? No sun, tons of problems, all right? De instant death, okay? I, I'm from New Hampshire. I don't know if you've ever been to New Hampshire, but they don't get much sun through much of the year. Awful, all right? Not God's design for your life to just live indoors in the freezing cold, okay? sun is dangerous. All you need to do is go downtown on a Friday night and just see all the people who fell asleep in tanning salons in downtown Columbia, Missouri, and you're just like, whoa, too much sun, dangerous, right? I've never seen so many, like, just burnt to a crisp college students. No judgment, no judgment. Maybe a little judgment. Too much sun is dangerous. Beyond just skin cancer and all that stuff, if you, if you were like, you know what, the sun is a life-giving source, I'm going to go right to the source, I'm going to go right to the sun, boom, you die. That's God. Good and dangerous. See, some of us have this image of God that he's like this grumpy God waiting for us to mess up. That's not, that's not the picture that the Bible paints. Sin is a pollutant. And that pollutant kills us, right? The wages of sin is death. That pollutant that we all have been infected with kills us, brings death. It brings death to relationships. It brings death to our own souls. It brings death to our bodies. That's why you woke up with a sore back this morning. Not because you're sinful. But we live in a world that's polluted by sin. It's everywhere. And when sin goes into this presence of the sun, it's dangerous. The book of Leviticus starts, remember, God's like, hey, I'll come to you. And he just shows up. And the question is like, ah, uh, uh, what do we do, right? Uh, Leviticus is divine sunscreen. There you go. Leviticus is sunscreen. Okay, we got a lot of exposure to this sun. How do we protect? How do we, you should wear sunscreen. How do we protect when the sun really does show up? And again, it's because God is the embodiment of love. God is the embodiment of joy, of goodness, of purity, of righteousness. He is all that. That's different from us. The word for that is holy. And when we come into that presence, those of us who've been polluted by sin, it's just like going into the presence of the sun. That's the tension that the book of Leviticus is trying to help us solve. What do you do when a holy God says, I'm coming for you. Here I am. It's, he's good and it's dangerous. That's the book of Leviticus. It's a story. It's not just a list of sacrifices, though it contains all these lists. It's a story. And here's part of that story. Let's just get our bearings a little bit. Adam and Eve, they're in this garden. They sin. They, they bring the pollutant into that holy place. God's like, this won't work. You got to get out. So they get out. And then he puts these, in the end of Genesis 3, these two cherubim carrying swords at the entrance of the temple. Now, I don't know if that's God being like passive-aggressive. Maybe. But it's like a subtle hint. Like, okay, if we go back, what's going to happen? We're going to die. Like, that's just, that's a subtle way of saying that. Okay? So, the place we're made to live, we get kicked out of. God, did he get kicked out of there? No. 
Sorry. That's still his presence. That's where he is. But we're out of there. Good news though. God's like, I'll come out. I'll come to where you are. And so he comes to dwell with Israel. And so the book of Leviticus starts with a very important sentence. It says this. He says, God called out from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle. The sun has shown up to our polluted world. And you notice Moses is not in the tabernacle. He's outside. And that's the question the book is trying to answer. We have experienced this pollution. God is holy. What do we do? What do we do? The answer, I'm just going to give you the answer up front. The answer is, living with this holy God is going to cost us everything. There's no way around that. And, and, when the love outpaces the sacrifice, we start sacrificing like crazy. Please, so many of us read the book of Leviticus through attachment filters, what psychologists call attachment filters. The way that we've been loved, we just, that's how God is. We can't imagine someone just saying, hey, I'm for you. I have, I have everything that can meet your needs and I'm for you and I want to love you and, and, and care for you. We can't imagine that because the people who are supposed to care for us in our lives, whoever you were, whether you love your mom and dad, still we all love our mom and dad, they disappointed us in the way they, they cared for us because they're limited people, right? There was not enough time to help us navigate everything that was going on in our hearts. And so there's damage done. And we read that damage onto God. The book of Leviticus, though, please hear this, is telling a different story. It's telling God has already showed up. He's already here. He's for us. He's saying, I, I, I want to be in a relationship with you. And it's like, after like bad news bears, right? So God showed up, gave the plans for the tabernacle to Moses. And Moses is on the mountain after he's rescued Israel. And Israel's like, uh, maybe he's not coming back. Here's an idea. Let's make a golden calf and have an orgy. And Aaron's like, really? And they're like, yeah. He's like, okay. And so they do that. And Moses comes back and is like, what's happening? This is terrible. And then they're like, we're going to stop this. And then the 3,000 people are like, we don't want to stop there. Okay, you guys are out. Everybody else, come with us into God's presence. His presence is life. There's death out here. Come into his presence with life. And then the tabernacle shows up and we're outside. It's like, how do we come in? How do we get in there? And the book just ends. It doesn't actually tell you. It makes it really bad, but doesn't, we're going to tell you, okay? This is where this series is going. Just, I, I feel like I need to just tell you where it's going. Okay, we started, there's a, there's a tree on a mountain, okay? And then the culmination of the story is Jesus dies on a tree on a mountain. Okay, you see that? Isn't that really cool, right? There's a tree in a garden, temple mountain, and there's all these priestly stuff going on. And then a priest shows up in a garden and dies on a tree in that, on a mountain. All right, that's where we're going. But we got to take a walk through Leviticus first. Because sacrifice is one of the most beautiful things that we can experience, but it's also terrifying. And without sacrifice, there's no relationship. Can you imagine a couple getting married, and this is one partner? I won't say who, right? We want to protect the guilty. 
But like one partner says, okay, we're going to get married. We're going to live together. Here's my life, okay? I, go, I wake up every day at this time. I go to bed every day at this time. I eat this every day. And I go to these concerts, watch these movies, and watch these shows. So you can be there for that, but this is my life, okay? I'm doing these things, and you, you can be around me, I guess. How well do you think that relationship's going to go? If there's no expectation of I'm going to give something up, do you think that relationship's going to last long? We find real love through sacrifice. And the invitation of Leviticus is find your deepest, truest desires in giving everything. And at the end, it won't feel like a sacrifice. So Leviticus, one through, one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Leviticus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. That's where we're going to be today. Leviticus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. You ready? When was the last time you read Leviticus? Has anyone read it like within six months? Wow. Hat off. All right, here we go. For the rest of us. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering, uh, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand uh, at the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it uh, against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is the word of the Lord. Father, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Help us to see the invitation. But help us not just to see the invitation, but the one making the invitation. God, we can sacrifice because you paid it all. God, I pray that we would see the love and that many of us would ask the question, what's keeping us from giving what we have to trust you? We ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. The book of Leviticus is very much in line with the rest of the Hebrew Bible. It is in seven parts. Alright? And there's all these uh, rules that break up the book of Leviticus. It's a seven-part book. And then what happens, in the middle of the book, they have a seven-day festival commemorating the tabernacle. And then after that seven-day festival, two idiot sons go into the tabernacle. They don't take it seriously, and they die. Which is reminiscent, it's echoey, of what happened. These two sons made a sacrifice in the book of Genesis. One of them didn't do it right, killed the other one, right? It's still the same story just being worked out because it's trying to say, we're trying to get back to Eden. We're trying to get back to the place where we live at that tree, where we're experiencing his life-giving presence. And so God uses all the rituals that Israel would have known and been familiar with and breathes new meaning into them. And that's tricky, right? That's tricky. We have rituals that we do, but if you try to explain the meaning of them, 
it's odd, okay? Like, for example, a ritual that we all have and we've all done, that I, I don't understand the meaning of it, but I do it all the time. I take a baked pastry. I put pieces of wax in that baked pastry. I set the wax on fire, and then I put it in front of someone and sing to them. You're, you're like, what is that? It's a birthday. All right? I can't tell you why we do that. I don't get it. Because it makes someone feel special. Why? Right? It's just fire. You know, they get to make a wish. It's not real. Right? But we do it. It's a ritual. It's a tradition. We have it. We do it every year. We try to explain it. You're like, yeah, it's kind of a weird one. All right? So now we're going back 3,500 years at rituals and traditions, and we're like, yeah, this is, this is tricky to explain. But here's what's going on with the birthday. All right? My best take at this is trying to say, hey, I don't like singing. And this is a very easy tune, so we want to get as much involvement as we can. But we're going to get all of us to make you the center of attention. We're going to stop everything. We're going to eat something delicious and special. And you're going to feel special. So it's not about the candles. It's not about the cake. It's about you feeling special. Real candles, real cake. But really, the idea here is you feel special. There's real altars. There's real sacrifices. But not the point. The point is God's trying to say, how do we fix the broken relationship? Sin has polluted the world. And I, that's a very intentional language. If you were walk outside, outside has been polluted by sin. That's the, the language and the image that Scripture has. So like when, um, when Cain kills Abel, for example, the biblical description is his blood went into the earth and polluted the earth. Sin is seen in the Bible as a pollutant. It kills things. It makes things die and decay. And so now God, who is life, when death comes around him, it speeds up the death process. Because he is life. He can't be around death. Sin is death. That creates a problem. See, so many of us, when we read Leviticus, we're like, man... Should I eat crab? Like, God said not to eat crab. I really like crab. Like, have you ever, you know, you just get the newspaper on the table and there's melted butter everywhere? It's great. I feel really bad for people allergic to shellfish. Should I feel bad about that? Does God really not like crab and he just kind of loosened some things up in the New Testament? No. The book of Leviticus is spoken to a specific people to say, hey, I am different. I'm not like everybody else. All right? I am life. You've never experienced this much life. I am righteousness. You've never experienced this much righteousness. I'm different, and it's going to affect every area of your life. And so we're going to create these pictures to remind you just how different I am. All right, this is Missouri, and I just want, again, totally judgment-free. I was a vegan for like three months. There's no judgment. If you are vegan, no judgment. It's great. Understand there's lots of dietary restrictions. But to, uh, to our fellow Missourians, is God anti-eating meat? Jeez, maybe. This is Columbia after all. Maybe, 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 maybe. God is not anti-eating meat. All right, when you eat a hamburger, you're like, is this God's best for my life? No, it is. Okay? It is. But... There's a law in Leviticus that says this. 
It says, you're not allowed to kill an animal and eat the meat unless you offer it as a sacrifice. If you do, you're guilty of bloodshed. Is God saying eating meat is wrong? No. He's saying, hey, I'm going to play act with you. I'm going to create all these rules for what life looks like so you understand just how different and holy I am and how my life, my presence, my life-giving presence changes every area of your life. There is not an area of your life that you can say, God, I don't think you really care about this. He does. Well, is he super controlling? No. He's unlike anyone you've ever met. He cares about the smallest details of your life. You can bring things to him because he cares. He's different. Is he, he's not trying to say it's bad, all right? So that's the thing. We think, oh, God has all these rules because he's like super persnickety. That's pagan. And there's a key to help us understand the book of Leviticus. It's Leviticus 17.11. It's the most weird, transformative sentence you'll ever read. It's wonderful. It'll change your life. It's that God, it's basically saying God is different from anyone else you've ever met. Here we go. Indeed, the flesh's life is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. Because it is the blood with the life that makes atonement. Holy cow. Pack up your bags. Let's get out of here. This is great. That's fantastic news. Okay? You're like, it is? Yes. Let me unpack it for a second. Okay? Indeed, the flesh's life is in the blood, and I have given it to you. All right? I have given it to you. These people lived in a world where the gods were very finicky. You don't know if they like you or not. And so you show up to make an, a sacrifice, and you're like, is this enough? I hope it's enough. And throw the kids in, right? Uh, we don't know what the gods are going to ask for. Ah! That's not Yahweh. Look what it says. I have given it to you. He provides sacrifice. He's the one who gives. It is a gracious gift, but it's not a fair gift. Keep listening. On the altar to make atonement. Here's what he's saying. The gods, it was make a sacrifice. How much? We'll figure it out, but a lot. All right? Well, and what happens? I won't crush you. Okay. A lot of us live like that. A lot of us live like that. God, I'm going to be really good. I'm going to be on my best behavior. Can I please get this promotion? God, like, I did what you said and life didn't turn out right. That's, that's, that's that. That's the backside of that. This, rather, is God saying, hey, I'm providing for you to make atonement. Atonement. What's atonement? It's a word that means what it sounds like. Okay? It's three English words. At. One. Meant. Meant is like a suffix that means the status of. Alright? So an accomplishment is the status of being accomplished. Right? The St. Louis Cardinals made the accomplishment of being in the middle of the pack this year. That's their the status of their what they accomplished. At one restored relationship. We want to be at one. God is saying, I have provided a sacrifice that makes this relationship work. Whoa, that's different. I'm holy. I've moved into your neighborhood. Don't worry, though. I'm going to make it work. He's for us. 
He's on our side. He's coming after us. He's relentless, even in the sacrificial system. Go back with me to Leviticus 1, though. We've got to unpack Leviticus 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Not relationship, right? They're not together. Moses isn't in his life-giving presence. He's outside the tabernacle. Speak to the Israelites. Say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering as, an an bring your, as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. This is what's called the whole burnt offering. You had to offer up the whole animal. And it was a whole animal that was without defect. It's very costly. That's the best, the best thing you've got. This animal has no defects. And the whole burnt offering means you put all of it on the altar and it's all gone. This is where we get the English word, well, where we get the word holocaust from. Very sober. Israel sees the Holocaust as a moment in their history when they as a nation were put on the altar and God just consumed the whole nation. That's what this is. This is a sacrifice that requires everything. Why? To make atonement. To fix the relationship. You're like, great! That phrase, you are to offer a male without defect. That's the Hebrew word tamim. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are to be tamim. I didn't really say tamim because he spoke Aramaic, but he said, you are to be without defect as your heavenly Father is without defect. And we're like, oh! That's not me. Right? And the Bible knows that. So it's like, don't worry. We'll provide a lamb, an animal. And the priest will then lay hands on the head of that burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf. The Hebrew word is samach. When you samach somebody, you put your hands on that thing and then that thing becomes your representative. Okay? So Moses samachs Joshua. At the end of his life, he puts his hand on Joshua and then Joshua becomes the new Moses and then what does Israel do? They cross the Jordan. Why? Moses helped them cross the Red Sea. Joshua helped them cross the Jordan. He's the new Moses. He's doing Moses. Paul puts his hand on Timothy. And Timothy becomes the new Paul. We put our hands on this perfect animal and it gets to go into God's presence. God moved into our neighborhood and it still doesn't work. Right? We need to be in his life-giving presence. Can we get in? Mm -mm. Someone else has to go in on our behalf. And keep reading because it gets kind of worse. You're to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So even the perfect thing can't get in. Right? Like, people have done evangelism like this and they say, you know, if you were perfect, you could get to heaven. Not true. That is not true. According to Leviticus. The animal was perfect and even a perfect thing going in God's presence died. Why? He's that holy. He's the son, for goodness sakes. We can't live in his presence. Is it because he's grumpy and mean and doesn't want us in his presence? No, he's good. He's just dangerous. And no amount of sunscreen is going to get us there. Like, this is a problem. 
And this is how the book of Leviticus ends. Like, people try, right? So, like, what happens is they inaugurate, like, great, let's go. And some people go in, they're like, woohoo, whatever, we don't care. And then, boom, they die. Like, oh, this is serious. Okay, he was serious. All right, we're going to be serious. We'll do it serious. Nadab and Abihu. They tried, didn't work. But here's, here's the tension that Leviticus creates. What do you do when God says, we're going to be together? I love you, I'm for you, and there's life in my presence. Come into my presence. Oh, you can't. What do you do? This, I, 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 have a, I have a conviction that when you understand the Old Testament, this is why we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Because if I can lay a foundation for the Old Testament for you, when you start to read the New Testament, things will just clunk, 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 fall into place. Do you understand now the significance when John the Baptist looks out and sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see the significance of that. He was Tamim. And he says, I'm going to go into God's presence as your whole burnt offering. It's going to cost me everything. That's what the whole burnt offering was. No more animal. Every other offering, except for one, you could eat the food. That's what it was. Basically, the temple was like a, uh, an ancient like butcher shop. That's the tension in 1 Corinthians. Like, can we eat meat offered to idols? It's because they were going to other butcher shops, right? So this is an ancient butcher shop, but you don't get to eat the whole burnt offering. That's all about relationship. And God says, hey, you, the tension created here, you can come into my presence, kind of. You can kind of come into my presence, right? Look with me back at the key to understanding Leviticus. Indeed, the flesh's life is in the blood. So remember, you kill this animal that's perfect, and then you spray its blood everywhere. It's super R-rated and gross. It's like carry. It's like, you know, ugh. Why? Why are they doing that? Because the life is in the blood. It's saying, hey, this perfect thing, this blood represents its life, this perfect life. And this, this is you getting to enjoy the temple. But I'm out, I'm out here watching that happen. Yeah, close enough. And then Leviticus ends. And you're like, uh, that's not enough. How can a holy God dwell among people who are polluted by sin? And the answer is... He can't. See you next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I really hope... Someone said this to me once. They said, I was in a Sunday school class here at Compass years ago, and I was saying, God has already made us holy. And people are like, no, you have to do works. I'm like, no, we're holy. I hope to lay this to rest right now. Hebrews 10.10. 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, remember, we've got Leviticus. We've got the sacrificial system. Life is in the blood. Jesus pours out his blood for us. He gives us his life. He becomes that whole burnt offering. How can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? He can't. So what does he do? He makes the people holy. Holy cow, guys. I don't think you're hearing me. Let me say it again. Okay? Because some of you are like, ah, oh, whatever. I just can't wait for lunch. <laughs> Here we go. 
A holy God cannot dwell with people polluted by sin. And sin pollutes you, pollutes the earth. He can't do it. He won't do it. It'll kill everybody and everything. He doesn't want to do that. So what does he do? He makes us holy. You are different because a priest died on a tree on a mountain. And the reason we don't feel the weight of that is because it's like a really foreign way to communicate that. It's really clunky. It's like, I don't know. Why didn't he just say that? He did to the people who were there. It was very clear. We are the ones that are like, all right, we got to comb through some of this stuff. We can experience the life-giving presence of God because his presence didn't kill us. It made us holy. That's crazy. That's Isaiah, right? Isaiah goes into the temple and the angels are saying what? Yep. If you didn't hear that, it's because people around you don't speak up. They say it three times, that same word. Alright? They say it three times. And Isaiah's like, I gotta get out of here. This is, I don't, I, I'm gonna die. And what does the angel do? Takes a coal from the altar and touches him and then he's made pure. We don't need sunscreen anymore. Jesus made us holy. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you have access to the holy of holies. And it's a gift. Nothing you could do. But it's one of those things that's so amazing, it's going to cost you everything. But along the way of costing you everything, it gives you back a ton of things. I dated a girl in high school who wasn't a Christian. And her mom one day, her mom was like super cool, like just a deadhead, you know, just hippie New Hampshire lady. And she's like, hey, Craig. Like, yeah? I heard about this thing called tithing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do that? Yeah. What is that? Well, it's like I give like 10% of the money I earn at Dunkin' Donuts to the church. Ugh, why? At the time, I, didn't, I don't know. Right? I didn't have a great answer. But there are people who make significant financial sacrifices, not just at Compass, but for the kingdom, who have written checks that hurt. There are people who sacrifice time. There are people, there are men and women who like, you know, I'm here a lot. Every time the doors are open, they're here, they're moving stuff, they're cleaning stuff, they're serving. Huge sacrifices of time. There are people who sacrifice their pride in relationships. You know what an apology is? An apology is a sacrifice. What goes on the altar? Your pride. And all these sacrifices get new meaning because of the sacrifice that was made. We're not giving money to earn anything. We've experienced the life-giving power and presence of God. And we're like, yeah, I want others to experience that. That's why we write checks. Yeah, I've experienced what happens when you're a young person and an old person believes in you and invests in you and it's not like, oh, you're just some annoying teenager with a lip ring and a blue mohawk, but I'm going to like take an interest in you. So I'm going to do that for the next generation. It's not a sacrifice. But if you start with a sacrifice, hello, would you like to die alone in a field and not be able to feel your toes as the lights go out? No one's going to do it. But if it's like, hey, do you want to keep this American experiment going? 
That's, you sell the love. That's Leviticus. When a holy God dwells in our presence, we get the life-giving power of his love. That's Leviticus. One of the greatest tragedies, I think, of the coronavirus, one of the greatest tragedies, injustice, was that so many people died alone. So many people got put in isolation and had to, had to face eternity without anyone by their side. Uh, I found this article on WBUR that told a story about this. I don't know if it was a nurse or a doctor, but they said this. They said, forcing my COVID patients to die alone is inhumane and unnecessary. This is what the article said. Mark, one of my patients in the ICU, continued to worsen. As his lungs grew stiffer and his organs began to fail, I told his family the bad news over the phone. What does that mean? His young son asked with a quivering voice, trying to sound brave. He's going to die. I'm sorry, I replied. There was silence as he processed. Mark, I've changed his name to protect his anonymity, took his last breath later that night. His children kept him company by a video on a tablet next to his bed and asked me to hold his cold hand for them. I didn't, I, I'm a rule follower. I know like some of you think I'm not, but I am kind of, kind, I'm, I'm mostly a rule follower. And I followed all the corona rules that I could. I didn't think it's right that people die alone. So, I would do hospital visits and I learned, uh, I learned I have a superpower I didn't know about. And it's a little, it was a little like disconcerting, but I, you just go with it. Uh, when you go into a hospital, you can like, don't use this, but you can get anywhere if you just tell them you're clergy. So, like, I went, don't use it. Like, okay. But I, I go to head in, and they're like, uh, you know, I, I got a call that someone, a Compass member was, you know, in, in the ICU. And so there, I go to visit them. They're like, oh, we're not taking uh, patients. Oh, it's okay. Clergy. Like, oh, okay. And they write me, and they give me a visitor pass. Cool. So I walk in, and they tell me where the room is, and it was like... Not an inviting room. It was like, isolation, do not enter. So I opened the door, and everybody in the room had hazmat suits on, and they're like, sir? I was like, clergy. I'm like, oh, okay. I was like, wow. This is so cool. So I sat with this person who was not in a good place, and they couldn't talk to me. Like, they would just get winded talking to me, and they were, trying, they were apologizing, they were sitting up, but, and they were like, oh, I thought I was going to be alone. Thank you. I'm like, yeah. And I didn't know what to say, so I'm just like, can I, can I read scripture to you? And they're like, sure. So I just went to the high priestly prayer, which is very informed by Leviticus, and I just started reading. Where Jesus prayed and said, Father, I pray that they would be one as we're one. I pray that they would experience your presence as I have. And I, I look over the top of my Bible and through the weakness and the sickness on that face, I saw peace. I saw joy, like this calm. It's okay. I'm going to sacrifice my life soon, but his presence is 
better than life. Now, you can know that God's presence is better than life, and you can know that God's presence is better than life. And the only way to know that God's presence is better than life is to say to God, God, there are things that I'm unwilling to sacrifice. Help me to live with open hands. And when you do, on the other side of that, you will find your deepest and truest desires. I promise. There's a, I'm going to, people in here who know anything about music are going to roll their eyes at me in a second. But my guilty pleasure band is Death Cab for Cutie. I know. Please don't judge. And they have a new song called Here to Forever. And the lyrics were really profound. Uh, here's, here's how, come on internet. Here's how some of the lyrics went. In every movie I watch from the 50s, there's only one thought that swirls around my head now. That everyone there on the screen, well, they're all dead now. Yeah, they're all dead now. And I can't help falling in love with bones and ashes. So here's someone facing mortality. Right? As we get older, we're like, oh, I have more days behind me than ahead of me. He's feeling that. On these days, it's hard to relax. It's hard to make me smile. And here's what he says. He says this, I want to know the measure from here to forever. I want to feel the pressure of God or whatever. That is the cry of our secular neighbors if I've ever heard it. They're like, I have no meaning. Just give me something that helps me feel. I want to feel the pressure of God or whatever. Look, here's the reality. You can live your life like life doesn't matter. You can, you can smoke weed and watch porn till you're blue in the face. Or you can give everything you have to this God who gave everything for us. And if you live like life doesn't matter, guess what? Life doesn't matter. You're like, life is meaningless. And you feel the meaningless of, of that. So yes, it's a sacrifice. It costs us everything. But the more we give, the more we receive, the more we experience. Our deepest, truest needs are found in the weight of the God who asks for everything. No risk it, no biscuit. What? If you don't give anything, you don't get anything. And God's saying, whatever you want to give... I'll take, and I'll give new meaning to that. But we're scared, and I get it. It's scary, because it's real. And so we're going we're gonna to participate in a ritual in a minute called communion. And while we do, we want to sit together with the question, what's keeping me from opening my hands to this God? What's keeping me from surrender? What's keeping me from experiencing his life-giving presence? Am I using him to hide from him? Is it, oh, I know this. Is it something else? How do we move from knowing about God's life-giving presence to knowing about God's life-giving presence? So as we take communion, we just ask the prayer today is, God, what's keeping me from surrender? 
Uh, we're going to pass the, the elements today, so we're going to do it a little bit differently. So he, uh, there's two cups. There's a cup with uh, grape juice and a cup with the best bland cracker you've ever had. And we're going to take the we're going to do the cracker first. So in just a moment, uh, ushers are going to come forward and pass the, the the elements. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. We ask so that you just not participate. This is just just watch, see what's going on. Um, but this is a ritual that is about presence. He's made us holy, and it's called communion. Presence. So we're going to experience that presence together. Uh, this church is, uh, we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's a super cool denomination. I really love it. Uh, and one of the things we value is learning from other denominations. Uh, when the Anglicans take communion, I love that they do this, they say, at the end of it, they say, thank you for feeding us. And that is what he's doing through communion. He's feeding us through his presence. So again, it's play acting, the, the, we believe that the juice and the cracker stay juice and cracker. And we believe that he's present in a special way when we, the body, gather to take communion together. And at the end of it, so the band's going to play, the ushers are going to pass, and then I'll come back and we'll take it together. So let's pray. Father, we confess that your life given for us is what gives us the courage to lay our lives down. God, I pray not for the people in the room who this, this isn't a struggle for. God, I pray for those of us in here who are wrestling. God, for those of us who are wrestling with surrender, who just want this to be done with so we can move on to the next thing. God, I pray that you would, your spirit would linger so we wrestle we wrestle with what you're inviting us into to experience your rich and true presence. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.